welcome to Park Church. Glad that you are here uh, this morning. We are wrapping up this little series called The Only Thing That Counts. Um, I'll kind of give you the sum of where it goes from here uh, in a little bit. But I want to start just by asking a question to kind of get your mind going a little bit. When you are successful in loving people, when you're successful in loving someone, why is it? Like, think about the people who you have felt the need to love and called to love, and you actually got up off the couch and you did the thing and you loved the person. Why was it that it was successful in that instance and not in other instances? Why? Why was that? I think for a lot of us, for our love to actually play itself out, um, we need a compelling reason to love. We need a reason. And, you know, uh, for most of us, we have an easier time loving people who we have an affinity for, right? Um, you know, your spouse. It kind of goes without saying. They're, they're someone who's close to you. Um, you've connected with them. You've chosen to be with them for the rest of your life. Um, you know, they support you. They listen to you. They're kind to you. You know, that sort of thing. They're your spouse. You're going to love them. You don't need much to love them. Um, your kids, I think, are the same kind of story, right? They're your kids. You're going to love them. Your heart, you know, your heart in some capacity belongs to them, and you're going to love them. Um, even if you're not wired that way, they're still your kids. If they end up being rotten people, it's going to reflect poorly on you. And so there's a little bit of self-protection that's like, yeah, I'm going to try to treat my kids well and love them up so that they grow up and that, and that reflects well. Um, for a lot of us, we have an easy time loving our friends. I have friends who I just genuinely enjoy being with. I genuinely enjoy my time with them. Um, I like listening to them. I like that they listen to me and share advice with me. I like that we just do common things together and we have a good time together. It prevents me from feeling like I'm all alone, right? And so I'm going to do loving things for them because they're my friends, and that's the way uh, friendship works. But then there's a class of people who we don't have like a natural connection with, but for some reason our heart just goes out to them, right? Like, my wife has this heart for um, kids, especially kids who aren't understood or kids who are just mistreated. Like, her heart is big. It just beats for those people. And maybe you have some, some group of people like that in your mind. Um, maybe people who don't have homes or maybe people who um, have given up on life. Or maybe, you know, maybe it's veterans who aren't treated well, right? Just for some reason, something about that connects with you and your heart beats for those people. And in those cases, you're going to go and love them because that's what you do. You love those people. But then there's a whole other category of people that's called everyone else, who you don't have a natural affinity for, who you're not connected to for some compelling reason. They're just people in our lives or even outside of our lives. And we don't love them, uh, we don't love them naturally. The amazing thing about Christianity, about the Christian faith, about what Jesus calls us to. And I've been doing this since I was 15, being a Christian. And I'm 37 now. I'm not a mathematician. That's not what I get paid for. But it's like a bunch of time. <laughs> I'm still amazed and impressed and awed by this idea. Uh, and this is what sets us apart, I think, from every other kind of people out there. Is that Christians are called to love not just people who we have an affinity for or who our heart beats for, but for people who we don't have an affinity for, for people who we don't even really like, for people who our heart doesn't go out to, those are the people who we're called to love. You know, uh, 
Jesus tells a lot of stories along these lines, and his most famous one, we talk about it a bunch here, and we're, and we're, and we're going to talk about it again next month, um, is the parable of the Good Samaritan. And in that, someone asks him, like, how do I live life? And Jesus says, you know, love God, love your neighbor. And then what he does to define living life is to say, this is what it looks like. Um, there was a man who, who was walking down the road, and he found someone who was beaten up and left for dead. And he, at great personal cost to himself, he saved this guy. He picked him up, he healed him, he brought him, he paid for him. And the man was his natural enemy. That's what love uh, calls us to. That's what love looks like. That's, what, um, that's, what, that's, how Jesus, that's how Jesus defined it, right? The problem is there's people in our lives who we just don't have that affinity for. And when we try to love people out of our own strength, who we don't have that natural connection with, I don't know if it works like this for you, but for me, it's tiring. It's hard. We run out of strength. We run out of gas to get there. We just run out of energy to do it. And it's hard. So the question that we're going to kind of address this morning is, how do we do it? How do we find the power? How do we find the energy? How do we get gas back in our tank to be able to love people who we just don't naturally love? That's kind of what we're going to address. So this is the last sermon in the series, this little three-part series. And um, two weeks ago, we started by talking about this one passage from one of Paul's letters, the Apostle Paul, um, in in his letter to the Galatians, where he says, the only thing that counts is faith working through love. And the way that we talked about that um, was to say that A lot of times, we as Christians, if you are a Christian, we get caught up thinking that the only thing that counts is faith. The only thing that counts is how much Bible we know, or how much worship we attend, or how much um, prayer we do, or how much belief we have, or how much feelings we feel, or how much things we think that are the right things to think. And Paul says that those things count if and only if they issue forth in love, only if they go out in love. I mean, Paul says elsewhere, I could have all the faith in the world, faith enough to move mountains, but if I don't have love, I'm nothing. Last week, uh, we really kind of drilled down on what that love looks like, on what that love is. And we said, it looks just like what Jesus did. Just as I have loved you, so you should love one another. And that love we saw, it looks um, like it's personally good for people who are receiving it. It looks like it's personally going to cost you something. You're going to have to sacrifice. You're going to have to give of yourself. And that's what it looks like. It also is going to look like you being a servant to people. That's what that looks like. And um, we gave you a question last week to kind of take home with you as the question to ask for any relationship, any situation, anytime you don't know what to do or how to do it. And the question is, what does love require of me? What does love require of me in that situation? This morning, the question that we're really going to ask is how do we do it? How do we find the power? How do we love like that? If two weeks ago we said, like, the vertical, right, the faith, me and God, that doesn't count without the horizontal, this week I'm going to say um, the horizontal just doesn't work. It's impossible unless, there's the ver- unless it's powered by that vertical. That's sort of the big picture. The way we're going to look at this is really looking at one sentence that a man named John wrote in one of his letters in the New Testament. John was one of Jesus' 12 closest followers. Um, And in fact, he was probably the closest follower. He wrote a 
a book about Jesus' life and his death and resurrection, the Gospel of John. And then he wrote a handful of letters, three of which survived antiquity and are in our New Testament today. Um, and in, in his Gospel, he kind of self-describes as the one who Jesus loved. And I don't know, maybe if I was writing a Gospel, I'd say the same thing. But um, I think we could trust John. He's probably trustworthy that him and Jesus had a special connection. Like, John knew Jesus face-to-face, like, right up again, like, Jesus loved John, right? Um, John was writing to a community of people who were uh, wrestling with, struggling with the same kind of questions that we are today. And uh, the answer that he gave to the kinds of questions that we're going to ask, here's the answer. It's one line, and you can memorize this. We love because he first loved us. We loved because God first loved us us. You should have been able to memorize that, the time it took to have that sip. (laughs) We love because he first loved us. Now, a lot hangs on what the word because means, right? And um, because, it kind of means two different things, and they kind of work together. It's kind of a two-pronged thing. The first is, um, we love because, as in the reason why we love, is because God loves. And here's the way it works. Um, God loves me, God loves this stool uh, because I belong to God and the stool belongs to God. I love this stool. We love because God uh, loved us first. It's, it's the reason why we should love. But it's not just the reason. It's also the, th- it because means the thing that powers us. The things, you know, the thing that kind of turns the key in our engine and gets us going. It's not just the potential energy of I love because I love the soul because God loves the soul and I love God and God loves me and I'm going to love the soul. It's actually the power that causes us to get up and go and do it and actually love that soul. It's the kinetic energy. It's that energy in motion. I used to be an engineer. What John is getting at in his letter is that when all the cylinders are firing, when there's gas in the tank, when the tires are good to go, um, when you're ready to go, This is just the way life works. This is the way God works and love works. God loves us. God loves me. God loves this stool. And the love that God has for me and this stool wells up within me, and I just naturally, out of that, go and love this stool. And when all the cylinders are firing, that's exactly what it's like. And it's beautiful, and it's simple, and it's easy. For how many of us does life work like that? You're just so bowled over by God's love for me, God's love for the soul. You just get out and love that. It doesn't work that way. Uh, in part because we're not dealing with finely tuned, you know, German engineering cars here that are brand new off the line. We are a bunch of used up old jalopies. We are a bunch of lemons who have problems. Um, Lemons that God has has promised to redeem and to restore and to make work again. But we are a bunch, um, we're a bunch of lemons nevertheless. And John knew this. Um, John knew that his ideal wasn't easy and it wasn't happening in the lives of the people who he was writing to. And that's the point. I mean, the story of the letter of 1 John is, is as simply as I could put it, is they said they loved God, which means they should love one another, and they weren't loving one another. 
And it's as simple as that. And in John's mind, his head exploded at that fact. Like the circuits fried and, you know, there was like a blue screen of death um, in John's mind. Because when you love God, when God loves you, when you know that, when that person, it it, it should just work like that. If you read through this short letter, you get the sense again and again, John is like, I don't know if he's frustrated or I'm just frustrated reading the letter, but he's saying again and again, like, if you love God, you just got to love your neighbor. You, you just got to do it. There's no way around it. You can't avoid it. I mean, the very next thing he says right here, right after 1 John 4, 19, those who say, I love God and hate their brothers and sisters are liars. And before you um, think, well, that's okay. I don't hate anyone. The word that John uses for hate there is not just hate as in like the strong, like, right? It means more like, um, like disrespect, disregard, dismiss as unimportant. Um, the word hate is really anything that falls short of what love requires. And so we can't exempt ourselves from this. It says, for those who do not love a brother or sister whom they have seen, they can't possibly love a God who they haven't seen. The commandment we have from him is this. Those who love God must love their brothers and sisters. And he says it a bunch of times. You just must love, you have to love your brothers and sisters. He says, um, if you think you're in the light, which means if you're in God, if you're in God's light, if you're in God's love, but hate a brother or sister, guess what? You're still in the dark. He says, if you see a brother or sister in need and you have the ability to help, if you have the ability to do the horizontal love and you don't, that means that God's love cannot possibly be in you. It means that the vertical isn't actually functioning right to make it go into horizontal love for others. If all the cylinders are firing and everything was going right, this is how it works. This is the ideal. But John knew it wasn't easy. And he wrote this letter to address some of the hurdles that get in our way of this um, working in this very simple way. And so I want to change the metaphor a little bit and talk about hurdles. You know what a hurdle is, right? People run races, from what I understand, and there are hurdles on a track, right? And they're, they're, they're a little taller than this is, right? And you have to jump over these hurdles, okay? That's the way it works. So think about loving one another as like running on a track. Whether it's practice or the real thing, doesn't really matter. But that's what it is. And there are these hurdles in our way. The thing about hurdles, if you're used to jumping over them, if you're in shape, if you can do it, it's no problem. But who out there isn't in shape? Oh, me. I'm not in shape. Um, If I attempt to jump over a hurdle, What's going to happen to me? What's going to happen to me? If I try to jump over a hurdle, what's going to happen? Um, Number one, I might have a heart attack before I get there, all right? Um, Number two, I'm not going to get over it probably. I'm going to hit my foot on it. I'm going to fall flat on my face. I'm going to break my arm, break my nose. You're all going to laugh at me. And then um, I'm never going to want to run a race again. I'm never going to want to jump a hurdle again. And it's going to make me afraid to to ever do that again. And if you, we don't have time for it, but if you think for a second, if, let, that, let that metaphor marinate in your life. I mean, where have you put yourself out to love someone and it just hasn't worked and it's made you afraid to love again? The other thing about hurdles, if you are in shape, great shape, if you're Olympic person, right? If the hurdle's designed wrong and it's just too big, I don't care how good you are, you are never going to be able to jump over it. If, if the hurdle in your way is too big or... Let's say they're little hurdles, and you can jump over them. But what if there's just a mountain of them? 
What if the guy who sets the hurdle was told to put them every 10 feet or however long that is, and he just put them all on a pile? There's a mountain of hurdles. You just can't get over. If there's too many hurdles, you also can't get over them. And so I want to address some of the hurdles that get in our way um, from loving because he first loved us. And each of the hurdle is really a bad idea that just issues forth in a plethora of bad actions, bad decisions, bad hearts, other bad ideas, bad intentions, bad stuff. And so the first hurdle, the first bad idea, and it's basically um, the reason why John wrote this letter. And you're going to have to stick with me for this one because it's a little complex maybe, but you'll get through it. Um, There were teachers who came into the community that John was writing to who told them that Jesus wasn't really human, that Jesus wasn't really flesh and blood, that he only seemed to be flesh and blood, but he really wasn't human. Um, If you're keeping score, this is the heresy called docetism. Uh, It comes from the Greek word dokein, that means to seem, and uh, Jesus only seemed flesh and blood, but he wasn't. You might be asking, why does this heresy matter? Why is John writing this? And I'm glad that you asked that question, because I'm going to tell you. Um, John is saying to himself, wait a minute. I was there. I saw Jesus face to face. I heard him with my own ears. Um, You know, I was there when he broke the bread. I was sitting right next to him. I was there. I was there looking up at him on the cross as his real blood was coming out of his real hand. And the spear in the side, it really punctured him. And there's real blood that came out and real water that poured out. I was there. This man was flesh and blood. I saw him. But why does that matter? Why does that matter for faith? This was the situation that was going on. If Jesus only seems to be flesh and blood, he's mostly spirit, he's mostly um, ethereal, he's not physical, then that means that the emphasis of faith becomes on the spiritual rather than the physical. It becomes on um, the things that we can't touch rather than the things that we can touch. It means that flesh and blood is devalued, which means that people are devalued. And that's exactly what was happening in John's community. They had started to become more concerned about the spiritual, right, love God, and they were neglecting their neighbor. Your neighbor had a physical need who you could help, and you didn't help it. Why? Because your faith wasn't connecting with uh, your works. That's what was happening. The vertical faith became more important to the detriment of the horizontal love. And this is really the same exact thing I talked about two weeks ago. So I'm not going to go into it any further, really. But uh, So if you want to hear more about that, listen to the message from two weeks ago. The only thing that counts is faith working through love. And so, you know, if this is a hurdle for you, that you have the mixed-up idea that the only thing that counts is 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 faith, and love doesn't matter, and your love isn't important, you have to clear that hurdle out of your way, or else you're not going to be able to run this race in the way that you're meant to run it. That's the first hurdle. The second hurdle, another bad idea. It's about who the us is in that sentence. For a lot of us, who the us is, and we don't do this explicitly, but we do it by accident, the us is people who are just like us, people who are close to us, people who we like, people who look like us, who talk like us, who love like us, who act like us, who vote like us, right? Those are the people um, who were part of the us there. We have to remember, though, 
what um, Jesus actually said in the Gospel of John, right? It was, for God so loved us that he sent his only son. No, it's for God so loved the world that he sent his only son. The world is the object of God's love here. Um, Earlier in the letter, John says, um, Jesus was the atoning sacrifice for our sins, but not just our sins. For the sins of the entire world, the world is the object of God's love. And the fact is, every time we treat someone with less than the love that God's love requires of us, we give credence to this bad idea that maybe they're not as much a part of us as us. Do you know what I'm saying there? Every time we look down on a person, for whatever reason, we're giving legs to the bad idea that they're not really loved as much as we are, that they're not as important as we are. Every time we stand in judgment over someone else, we're saying, you're not as worthy, you're not as good, you're not as lovable uh, as us, as me. The bad idea is that we think of other people as less a part of us than us, less important than us, less worthy, less valuable, less loved by God than us. The hurdle to get out of the way is the inability to grasp the truth or to be grasped by the truth that every person is a person whom God loves, that every person is a person for whom Jesus died. This fact, this truth ought to grab us and ought to determine the way that we see things completely different, see the world around us, especially those who we don't love already, especially those we don't have an affinity for. Because we might not have that natural connection with that person over there, but you know who does? Jesus does. Jesus loves that person over there. And so we might not have a natural affinity, but we have a supernatural affinity because God loves that person, and so we are called to love that person because God did for that person the same exact thing that he did for me. And if that person was worth it, if I was worth it and that person was worth it, then that person um, deserves my love. That's what my love, uh, that's what God loves calls, calls for from us. And do you know how this, um, this hurdle tends to manifest itself in our lives? I mean, a handful of ways. Um, Laziness. Laziness is the idea that something is not worth my time or my energy, right? Laziness, when it comes to love, is like saying, you're not worth my time and energy. And the fact is, if you actually believed deep in your heart that that person was worth God's time and energy, then you're going to get up off your couch and love that person, right? Um, selfishness is another one. Selfishness is the idea that I'm more important than you are, that what I need matters more than what you need. If you actually believed that that person mattered that much to God, that God loves that person that much, um, you're going to realize that they're just as important as I am, and you're going to give your love to them in a different way. Apathy is another one. I just don't care enough. But you know who did care enough? I mean, Jesus cared enough. God cared enough to send his son into the world to save the person who you don't quite care about. And look, um, a lot of the Christian life is learning to align your heart with God's heart. And God's heart cared so much about that person that he sent his son to die for him. And so we have to align our hearts with that person. Jealousy is another one. I don't like that they have what they have because I deserve it because I'm better than them. 
If that's something that's living in your heart, you have to accept the fact that God loves them just as much as he loves you, and they're entitled to whatever God gives them. And you should rejoice and celebrate in what they actually have. This is something that you can apply to the situation you're thinking of, to the person um, in your heart right now. What does love require of me towards this person for whom Jesus also died, for whom Jesus also loves, and so, so do I? That's the second hurdle. The third hurdle that gets in our way, it's just the inverse of that one. It's not that the us is too small, it's that we're not part of the us. It's that God loves everyone but me. God doesn't actually love me. If this is part of your faith, if this is what you're thinking, and there's a lot of people who think this and they would never actually admit it at a place like this, but if this is what you're thinking, how could God possibly love me? God's love is not for me. Um, If you're not secure in God's love, you're never going to be able to be free to love. You're you're never going to be able to be confident in God's love in order to go and love someone else. You're never going to be able to be selfless enough because when, you're, when we're not secure in love, all we want to do is kind of um, keep it for ourselves. You're also never going to think that your love is actually going to make a difference in the world, that your love's going to matter if you don't think God loves you. There is this idea in Christian faith, and it, it, some flavors of Christian faith, and I think I know where we get it from, um, that we are just supposed to loathe ourselves. We're supposed to hate ourselves like we're just worthless. Um, it, it comes out, you know, there's a letter that Paul wrote where he refers to us as the scum of the earth, the garbage of the world, and um, he doesn't mean that personally, like you are trash. That's not what he means, but we take that idea and we run with it. Um, amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. And we take this idea of wretch because that's what we connect with, and we ignore the fact that it was God's amazing grace that You know, he thought you that valuable to send his son into the world for you. There must be something lovable about you, even if God is the one who just determines it. We think this way sometimes because when we sin, when we make the mistake, when we do the thing that hurts the person, that betrays God, we can't actually believe that God would love us enough to forgive us. And so we can't close the computer screen with the girl on it. And we, and we get sent into a spiral because of it. We can't believe we spoke to our kids like that. We can't believe we didn't do the thing for, the, for, for, our, for our spouse again that we said we would. And it's easy to hang our hat on that guilt, on that wretched status. It, it kind of feels good to feel bad like that. It's harder to confess that mess to God than be confronted by God's amazing grace towards you that forgives you because he loves you. It's harder to admit that what happened to you might not have been your fault and you're not worthless and unlovable. It's even harder to admit that some of the things that happened to you might have been your fault. And it still doesn't mean that you're worthless and unlovable. Because Jesus has decided to love you. Because God decided to send his son because he loves you. Jesus said, um, you know, love your neighbor as yourself. That's why you should love yourself. Not because there's some shining light within you. Not because you're a unique flower. You know? Because God loves you. He decided to love you when he sent his son for you. That's why you should consider yourself part of the us. And your love actually matters. I was 
speaking to a friend this past week um, who has a neighbor who she was thinking about reaching out to. She's someone who kind of spends a lot of time alone, and she feels like um, if she were to come over, it would be like a good friendship. It would mean something to this neighbor. And just as she was about to go and invite this person over, there was a voice in her, in her head that said to her, um, why would she want to hang out with you? Why would she, why would she want your love? She'd be doing you a favor if, if she came over. And you have to fight off that voice that says you are a wretch and you're worthless. You are the scum of the earth. Because that's not what God actually thinks of you. That's not what Jesus did for you. Jesus loves you. And Jesus um, says that, that your love actually counts. The way that this hurdle manifests itself in our lives is through fear. We are afraid to love other people because we don't think we'll, it'll be received. It's a fear of rejection. It's a fear that if I put myself out there, um, what if I get embarrassed? What if I get laughed at? What if I get dropped? What if I don't have any left for myself? And you know what John says about this? John says that perfect love casts out fear. There shouldn't be any fear with love. We love because God loves. And when we love, um, we'll put it in his hands to do with it what he will. And so if you're able to move those three hurdles out of the way. You have a chance to run the race. But here's the thing. You still have to run the race. You can have a clear track and still decide not to get up and do anything, right? Not to run the race. You still have to do it. Um, sometimes the stars align, right? The engine's running. You're good to go. You're, you're, you're stretched and ready to run. And you just don't feel like running. You just don't want to get up and do it. This was a, this was a dynamic that I wrestled with all week. Like, if it's clear that God loves the world, God loves us, God loves me, God loves the stool, I believe that, I know that. Why don't I love the stool? Why don't I make that transition from the vertical good stuff to the horizontal love? Why? There's two answers that I think um, work here. There's two answers I want to give you, and they kind of work together. They might sound like they're um, in competition with each other, but I actually think they work in concert. And the first answer is simply this, uh, you can't stir your own heart to go and feel that kind of love. You can't force yourself to feel love, um, to compel yourself to go, right? You can't make your heart beat for another person. The thing that you have to do uh, is God has to do that in you. God has to do that in you. The only thing we can do in, the, in response to that is ask God to do that in us. And what I'm talking about here is the Holy Spirit, God's very presence in our lives, in our hearts. We have to ask God for the Holy Spirit to make a movement inside of us, to do something different, to shake us up, to um, put our hearts back to life. John, in his letter, says that if you love one another this way, it's evidence that the Spirit is in you. But he doesn't quite say how to make it happen. Um, Paul, in one of his letters, comes a little bit closer when he says, like, the way to motivate this, the way to get that, that engine to start is when God pours his love into our hearts through the Holy Spirit. God's Spirit creates in us love to love with that wasn't there before. And if that's not something that you experience every day, and I, I am part of the club, too, that doesn't experience that every day, we need to be people who are asking for that every day. We have to enter into a relationship with God where we are asking for that regularly. 
Because a lot of us aren't just naturally motivated to love. You know, we're not good cars. We're, we're broken down in a lot of cases. We need God's Spirit to move in us and through us. And one of the challenges is we can't make it happen. I wish there was like a line I could give you to like control the Spirit, to make the Spirit move in you. And there's just nothing that I can do to say that. Uh, we are not in control of the Spirit. It's free. He is free to do what He will. But we can ask for it. We can petition Him for it over and over again. And so if you don't feel that kind of love, this is something that you can do. Just continue to ask God for it. And ask God for it with other people. Ask God for it in community. We ask for it here on Sundays. And some of the songs that we sing in the prayers. When you enter into this place next Sunday, before you walk in the door, say, God, Holy Spirit, Come into me and say something. Speak to me. Move inside of me this morning. That's the first thing uh, that you can kind of do. Uh, that's, that's the first answer. The other answer, and this is going to sound like it's in direct competition with what I just said, is even if you don't feel like loving, even if you don't have that love and feeling, even if you don't feel like running the race, you don't feel like the Spirit is stirring in you, do it anyway. Um, out of your own strength, out of your own sweat and tears, out of your own blood, do it anyway. There's a dynamic, there's a thing going on in John's letter um, that he puts the highest priority on obeying God's command. And like, that's it. It doesn't really matter if you feel like it. It doesn't really matter if that person's worthy of your love, if your heart beats for them. John's like, if you love God, you're going to do it, regardless of what, of, of what anything else, regardless of how you feel about it. And the interesting thing is, um, as he goes on, what he says a number of times is that as we obey his command to love one another, God's love becomes perfected in us. God's love becomes more than what it was. It grows in us. God's love matures in us. Ideally, you're going to get out there and love because, man, God's love is just flowing through you, making your heart beat and whatnot. But sometimes what you have to do is just get up off the couch and go and do it. And I think about it like this, to get back to the running metaphor. When you start running from my condition, let's say, um, that first day, you're not going to get very far. You're not going to do very well. You're going to be tired, exhausted. The next day, you're going to hurt like no one's business, right? Things aren't going to go well. It's going to be hard. It's going to be sweaty, right? Um, but as you keep at it, as you keep going, what happens? Your muscles work. They start to work again. Um, your lungs, you could breathe in deeper, right? You gain your strength back. You gain your stamina so that one day you find that I can actually run a mile, <laughs> I can actually run. Like, that was a little bit of biography there. Um, <laughs> you can actually do that, right? Because as you work those muscles, it happens again. And it's, it's something like that with God's love. That as you obey it, you find that God actually works in you. Whether you feel like it or not, that God actually does something in you. I was reading um, a little book about this, and uh, listen to what this author has to say about this dynamic. He said, John's first suggestion uh, centers on obedience. If I cannot feel God's affection, should I wait for that feeling before I love? Or in the case of my loving, might I experience God's love for me uh, all over again? 
I know Christians who have served in desperate situations and in their serving have tasted for the first time the wonder of God's love. Some have entered urban Chicago to work. Others have gone overseas or worked in our prison system. The point is that they were exhibiting extraordinary love among the loveless, not as a way to make God love them, but as a sort of exercise to invigorate their hearts, to touch love itself because they have felt loveless themselves. Remarkably, loving someone who is unlovely brings into focus the power of God's choice to love us in our unloveliness. When we love, God just does something in us. He confronts us with his love. And so I'm saying you need the Spirit to make it work. You need the Spirit to move in you to love like this. But I'm also saying you need to do it even if you don't sense that Spirit working in you. And the Spirit's going to meet you in it. It's not an either or. It's a both and. And so here's what I want you to do with it. Um, It is super late. Holy cow. Um, Here's what I want you to do with it. We're going to go right from the sermon into communion. Um, here's Here's what you do with it. Take out those scorecards that you filled out two weeks ago, the person who's close to you, person who's not so close to you, um, and do a few things. One is say to yourself, it matters that I love this person because God loves them, and I'm going to learn to love them. The second thing you do, ask God for God's help uh, to love them. Ask God's spirit to move in you and stir your heart to go do it. And the third thing is this week, maybe even today, do something concrete to love them, whether you feel like loving them or not. And see what God does in you. See how God meets you uh, in that experience. Now let's pray that God would be in this for us as we uh, prepare to celebrate communion. God, we thank you for your love for us, which is um, so strong and so deep and refreshes us and invigorates us and changes things for us. Lord, uh, we are blown away by it. We are uh, in, 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 in constant gratitude for your love for us. We ask you, Jesus, that you would show yourself to us, show your love to us, even now through remembering your sacrifice, your death on the cross for us. We pray that you would um, speak that love into our lives in a way that changes things, that your spirit would come into us, would um, get our blood pumping again, wake us up, open us up, um, so that we go out and love this world and people can come to know you through uh, your love through us. We pray this all and we put this in your hands, Jesus. Amen.